Thank you, music team, for leading us in those rich songs which uh, herald the uh, great themes of the Reformation. And so, as we've been, as we've already mentioned, this Sunday marks the 500th anniversary of what is called the Protestant Reformation. And by Reformation, we don't mean honoring dead men but honoring the man who is risen from the grave and who is still alive. We speak of the recovery of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, which by and large had been hidden. And strangely enough, it had been hidden by the church itself. Because the gospel was hidden, people remained enslaved to sin. I hope that by ritual they may accumulate enough merit for themselves, and even, in some cases, for their own dead loved ones, that they may escape the torments of hell and limit the purging fire of purgatory. See, by the 1200s, the authority of the Pope had arisen to exceeding heights, whereby the Pope was held to be Christ's vicar. That means Christ's representative on earth. And as such, the Pope became the channel through whom all God's grace would flow. And it would flow all the way down to the priests and to the parishes. And this authority was so-called extended from the Pope all the way down through the structures and hierarchy of the church, down to the priests who were the ones who could open up the means of grace to the people. They had authority to do so through what was known as the seven sacraments. These included baptism, confirmation, the mass, penance, marriage, ordination, and last rites. And all these things, they, they had the appearance of godliness, but they lacked power because the true means of God's grace had been supplanted. True means of God's grace has always been through His Word. And at this time, Scriptures were not only hidden through the ritualism and the traditions of the church, but God's Word had been hidden because it was only made available in one translation, and that was the Latin Vulgate. Latin Vulgate had been written and produced by Jerome in the 4th century. That was nearly a thousand years earlier. And not only were the scriptures in Latin, but so was the service. And where the point of the service where the, uh, or the climax of the service would be at the, at the mass, where the priest would supposedly transform the bread and the wine into the literal body and blood of Christ. And, and as this would occur, the priest would exclaim in Latin, hoc es corpus meum, this is my body what it would be said. Well, the problem was that no one spoke Latin. In often case, not even the priests spoke Latin. It was just a ritual, and they would just recite these things. And the problem was they didn't even know how to pronounce it, and it often came out hocus pocus. That's where we hear those terms, hocus pocus. And we associate it with magic and something transforming. And so through the ritualism and the hidden nature, not only of the fact of the, of the structures, but even the language, no one understood what was going on. This dark period of Christianity suffered because the light of God's Word had been covered. 
And in a literal sense, it had been locked away. Priests didn't even have access to the Word of God. We spoke of, of Martin Luther and him nailing the 95 theses on the, on the door of Wittenberg. He was just recounting the abuses of what was called the indulgence. And where one, John Tetzel, would come and he would be extorting people for money and telling them that if they would give more and more money, they could spring their loved ones free from purgatory. You may think that's something that goes on 500 years ago, but you uh, would, uh, it wouldn't be uncommon to see that even the Pope today will offer indulgences for things simply as following him on Twitter. But Martin Luther, even when he nailed the 95 Theses as a priest, he had not yet had access to the Word of God. There was no Word of God. It was everything coming down from the top, and at the very top there was great corruption. However, as God has proved throughout history, His Word is never truly bound. Just as God brought reformation in the days of King Josiah when the law of God literally had been lost in the kingdom of Israel, when it was recovered and, and Josiah uh, read the law, he ripped his garments in mourning and, and they read the word and reformation took place in Israel. So God began to recover his word 500 years ago in his church and reformation would ensue. The seed of the reformation began though before Luther, began to be planted through the efforts of, of a man named John Wycliffe around 1378. And he began to do the unthinkable, translate the Latin Vulgate into English so that people could actually hear and understand God's Word. And so for those in England, they now had a Bible in their own language whereby people would dedicate themselves, get this, to the illegal practice of secret groups of Bible study. It was illegal to have the Bible in your own hands. But John Wycliffe's efforts provided that follower of John Wycliffe named John Huss began to expose uh, the contradictions of the popes in the Catholic Church at this time. As they began searching the scriptures, they didn't find things like indulgences. There was the absence of purgatory, and the absence of the authority of popes and cardinals and bishops. Huss was ultimately burned at the stake for preaching the word of God, but the flame of God's word had already begun to be inflamed. A group of his followers, known as the Hussites, had established independence from free papal control. And they began preaching the word of God in their cities. They began participating in communion, not the mass. And shortly before Huss died, tradition has it that he said these words. You may roast the goose. Huss means goose. But a hundred years from now, a swan will arise whose singing you will not be able to silence. Prophetically, nearly a hundred years later, a man named Martin Luther began to study a newly published Greek New Testament. This was after he nailed the 95 Theses, but he had been asked to come and study at the university. And there was a new project that had just been completed by Erasmus, the Greek New Testament. And it was there when Martin began to read the scriptures in the original language that he began to understand the righteousness of God was not a bad thing. Righteousness of God was a good thing because it was given by grace through faith. Through the efforts of the printing press, Martin Luther translated the Bible into German, and the rest was history. 
The word began to be propelled throughout Europe. And the once hidden word of God was now put in the place into the hands of the people. True grace began to set people free. They began to hear the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time, even though the whole state religion was so-called Christianity. You could come to the church and no one, the priest included, had a clue about the gospel. But when the word of God began to be preached, the word of God began to be read, hearts began to be changed. And so the heart of the Reformation was the recovery of the Scripture. If you really want to boil it down, it was the return to the Word of God as His means of grace to set people free from the bondage of sin. It is in the Word of God, the Scripture, that God reveals to us that salvation, the forgiveness of sins, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. These are the great truths that we sing. We've read through the Word of God. And this is why we open the scriptures each Sunday. This is why we, we preach. One of the changes that, that Pastor Chris mentioned was, was that the center, the climax of the service, moved from hocus pocus the mass to opening up and beholding and hearing the word of God in your own language. This is why missionaries risk their lives to this day to translate the word of God into the native tongue of unreached people groups. This is why we, we have new translations coming out. You may wonder, well, why don't we just use the King James? Because it's the same as Latin Vulgate. No one understands it. That was the heart of the Reformation and, and got news for us. English isn't the only language on the face of the planet. We have to put the Word of God into the people's lap. And so the heart of the Reformation was that the lawyer could have the Word of God and the peasant could have the Word of God, and he could understand it in his native tongue. And so in doing so, we unleash the Scripture and let it do its work. And that's what we're here to do this morning as we receive God's grace in Christ mediated through Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. I invite you to follow along with me as I read. Apostle Paul says under divine inspiration, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death 
to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. In this passage, Paul continues to unpack for us the the marvelous gospel of grace in which we stand. This grace in which we stand and have access by faith, chapter 5, verse 2. And this grace in Christ, it set us free. It's truly liberated us from the bondage of sin. And so that we may not live to ourselves, but that we may live to God's glory. This is contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, which says we must accumulate grace or merits through the sacramental system in order that we may achieve our salvation and a right standing before God. See, the difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel or the, the, the message preached through the Roman Catholic Church is that justification through the gospel of Jesus Christ has already occurred. The Roman Catholic Church says accumulate works through the grace that we dispense so that you may achieve your justification. Vastly different message. But as we have seen, we have died with Christ and we have risen with him. These gospel truths are ours now, and that's what Paul wants us to see. And so these things are at odds with the scripture that place our right standing now before God on the basis of Christ's once-for-all work on the cross and his resurrection. Texts like these where Christ has died once and for all and lives forevermore before God the Father were one of the means by which the the contradictions of the Mass began to be exposed because it was in the Mass that so-called Christ was crucified Sunday after Sunday again and again and again. But as we see, the Scripture does not say that. He died once for all, and he lives forevermore. And so this morning, I want us to grow in our knowledge of the Word of God. I want us to grow in our understanding of the grace of God in Christ alone. Namely this, that this grace truly sets you free. It is the grace that truly liberates. It's the grace that unshackles the bonds that are around the sinner's heart. It's the grace that sets us free that we may truly live and live to God's glory. Here in the first 10 verses of our passage this morning, we see exactly how we've been set free from sin. And Paul emphasizes that this grace is outside of us, and it is particularly in the fact that we are united to Christ by grace through faith. Paul opens up this section of Romans by responding to a criticism that he would often receive after he would preach the gospel. And this criticism was that if the gospel of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, then, then such message will promote sin. It would, it, would, it would give people a motive to do whatever they please. We need some checks and balances. And Paul says that's a false understanding of the gospel. I often hear this same type of criticism, not only from my, my friends who are, are trapped in the Roman Catholic system, those who are studying these things and maybe apologetics for the case, your gospel will promote sin. I like to say I like to have the same accusations that Paul had because that is by no means the case. But I do want you to hear that the gospel is a free gift of God to you. But this free gift, it transforms. You only understand it on human ears. You're not understanding it the way it meant it's meant to be understood. 
And so what's the right answer to this charge? Well, Paul says, by no means. Those who have died to their sin cannot live in it any longer, he says. This gospel of Christ crucified is the good news that somehow, somehow we too have died with him. And this death has set us free from sin. And this is what he begins to unpack here in verses 3 through 4 when he references our being baptized together with him. Look again in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who are, have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. By recalling our baptism, Paul is explaining the spiritual reality that occurs when one professes their faith in Christ. That's what baptism is. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. And so Paul's not getting caught up in the debates, does, does baptism save or, is it, or, or is salvation happen before you're baptized? Yes, that is true. But in the early church, they just kind of, you referred to your baptism. And he's referring that to the church in Rome, and he's reminding them that when you were baptized, what did that represent? It wasn't merely a symbol, but it was an expression of a genuine spiritual reality that you have experienced. And so you were immersed, interesting language there he uses. You were buried, you were baptized into his death. I often say when I, uh, we're talking about baptism, if we hold you down too long, what happens? I had one person say, I get wet. I said, yeah, but what if you stay wet for too long? You die. <laughs> it's a picture of us dying to our old self and raising anew that something has changed. And Paul says that when we are baptized, when we profess faith in Christ, there is a spiritual transformation that takes place. And in some mysterious way in the gospel, we have been crucified with Christ and we've been raised to newness of life as well. So we've died to that sin that held us captive, Paul says. And we are now to, raised to newness of life in order that we may live to God. There, there's a sense in which we have been inseparably united to Christ so that what is His now becomes ours. Our life is absolutely engulfed in Christ. Another picture of baptism. You're, you're engulfed into the waters and you come out a whole new person. And so how were we identified with Christ? How have we been united to him? Well, in two ways. Number one, we were united to him in his death. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that we've been united to Christ's death? Well, first it means that our old self, Paul says, was crucified with Jesus on the cross. Now, who's the old self? Sometimes you'll hear me tell stories. Now, this is B.C., that means before Christ, or this is old chase, I sometimes say uh, with my community group before to preface a story that I'm about to tell. Somehow it gets me off the hook to, uh, for whatever you're about to think about me. But anyway, Paul uses such language and he says, there is an old you if you've been baptized in Christ, if you've professed faith in Christ, if you experience this grace. And this old self is who we were in Adam. We saw that last Sunday, right? you were here with us in, in chapter 5, verses 12 um, to, through 21, we saw that all human history is directed by two individuals, Adam and the second Adam, and the second Adam being Christ. And all of us are born under the first Adam, the first man to be created. We all come down from him, 
And as a result, we've inherited a sinful nature. Well, Paul says, the gospel says, when by God's grace, one trusts in Christ, that power is broken. And we're transferred from being sons and daughters of Adam to being sons and daughters of the king. Because we've died and been raised anew. And so in some mysterious fashion, our whole person which has been controlled by sin, has died. This isn't hypothetical. This isn't uh, some, some, something that has no reality. This is true, Paul says. This is true by grace through faith. You have died. And so in a real sense, you were born being united to Adam in sin, but this power which we experience... In Adam's union, we feel sin through desires, temptation, the passions that that literally eat us up inside. Paul says that if you're in Christ, that power has now been nullified, verse 6, right? It's been brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul grounds this assertion in a truth, verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. The penalty of death has truly been satisfied because our old self died with Christ on the cross. Whoever you were, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, your old self, united to Adam, died. And you're no longer his relative. But now you've been resurrected with Christ. Now the reign of sin and death no longer have jurisdiction over us. How's that work? Well, it's like a criminal who served his time in prison, however long it's been. But when that time is served, he gets to be checked out and walks out free, right? Never to be charged again or sentenced on the basis of that crime. Well, we've died with Christ. Our sentence has been served with him as we've been united to him. And all our crimes have been served. Except by God's grace, we not only die in Christ, but we're resurrected with him as well. See verse 8. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. And so we're not only united to him in his death, that's often what we think about when we think about the cross, but there's another side to this, verses 9 through 10, in that we are united also in his resurrection. Jesus not only died, but he rose three days later. He was raised from the dead, and he showed himself to be greater than the powers of sin and death that they could no longer hold him in the grave. And so if we're united to the one who defeated those powers, then we too have defeated those powers. He defeated them so that he might bring righteousness and life to reign. And so Jesus is not dead, he's alive. And death will never touch him again, Paul says. Death no longer has dominion over him. Listen to these words of the Apostle John, how he he describes the living Savior in Revelation chapter 1. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. 
When one has keys, that means they have authority over something. I've got keys in my pocket, to my car, into my house. It means I have authority to, to close and lock those, those doors and, and get into that car and turn it on. Well, Christ says, I have authority over death and Hades. They are under my dominion now. And so Jesus now sits on his throne at the right hand of God, having all authority in heaven and on earth given to him, and he's now putting all his enemies under his feet. These are true gospel realities for us, brothers and sisters. What we are doing here seems absolutely insignificant to the world and the world's affairs, but let me tell you, the world is burning. And the people who are truly alive are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ today. We're the ones who are worshiping around the heavenly throne with the heavenly angels, Hebrews chapter 13 says. Chapter 12. We worship a living Savior. And at his first coming, Jesus was subjected to all the likeness of sinful men, even submitting himself to the point of death. But at his second coming, at his appearing, in his eternal glory, as the one who is faithful and true, he's going to make war on those who have rejected him. He's going to make war and put to end sin and death and all those who are under its reign, whose eyes are the flames of fire and whose robe is dipped in blood, but this blood-saturated robe makes his army pure and white. And on him he bears a name that no one else bears, and that is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Paul says his death he died, he died once to sin, but the life he lives, he lives forevermore for us. And so, brothers and sisters, we also have been united to Christ with his resurrection. And Paul says in, in, in verse 4, so that we too might walk in newness of life. Why? Because sin no longer has dominion over you. Oh, it may afflict you, but as we're getting ready to see, it has no power over you. Because of our union with Christ, we're now alive to God by grace through faith. We're alive to God by grace through faith. And this is the emphasis in verses 11 through 14. Now, if we think about these truths, some of you might be saying, yeah, but I, I don't feel like I'm free. I feel like I'm still held captive. My body is still decaying. I, I don't feel like I have been raised with Christ. Well, it is true that we still await our resurrection. It is true that we still battle sin and we still experience death. But even now, our union with Christ has rendered the powers of sin to be broken, enabling us to fight. Unbelievers can't fight. Those who do not know Christ, those who have not experienced the grace of Christ, those who have not come to Christ through faith, they cannot fight. They're not liberated. They're held captive by their sin. But you, brother and sister... If you've trusted Christ, if you've heard the word of God liberate your soul, well, you've been liberated from the destruction of idolatry, haven't you? You've been liberated to truly see the beauty in worshiping the, the true and living, living Savior. We're able to fight our sin and, the, and wage the war against sin that wages against our soul. The picture here is us being held captive to sin. Prior to coming to know Christ, we are in bondage. And the reality is, is that we are so in bondage, we think we're free. 
because it's all we know. But yet, Christ has come. He's unshackled those bonds, and now we're running to him. But there's still a sense in which we are behind enemy lines. But the difference is that we've been armed with faith. We've been armed with hope. And so now we have tools, we have promises to counteract the lies of the evil one. Charles Wesley penned the great hymn, And Can It Be? I want you to hear these great lines as he describes his liberty from sin by God's grace. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amen, brothers and sisters. That is what happened to us in Christ. That is the truth that Paul is explaining here. You've been united to him, and you have been broken from those shackles. You are no longer in Adam, but you are in Christ, and therefore sin has no dominion over you. And so the future hope of resurrection is actually already being experienced for us now. Well, how is that happening? He's given you a new heart. You worship Jesus where before you would not. I was having a conversation with a dear brother in this church just this week. And I said, hey, he was struggling with sin. And have I experienced repentance? And I said, the very fact that you are battling is proof that God's grace is working in your life. So one of the differences that I can look back in my own life is I grew up in the church. For whatever reason, I have no idea other than God's grace had not opened my eyes yet. I heard, but I did not really listen. I saw, but I did not see. And so I would pray, but I never wanted to pray to Jesus because I thought it was sissy. I'm not going to pray to some dude. That's a, that's a teenage boy thinking. But you know what? I opened up the Gospel of Matthew when I was 18 years old in my dorm room, and I began to pray for, to Jesus. My heart began to be warmed, and I had opened up the Scriptures many other times before, but this time God's grace was working in my heart. The Spirit was blowing. I was being born again. And really, when we look at our lives, are you worshiping Jesus? Do you love Him? Well, that's, that's the Spirit of Christ in you. John says to his letter to, in 1 John, he says, what is the spirit of Antichrist? Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Well, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Is your, he your only hope? Do you love him and you worship him and you adore him? Well, that's God's life working in you. That's resurrection life working in you. It is the seeds of hope that is a promise that as my heart has been raised, so my body will be raised when he returns. And so knowing these truths, as we begin to now consider these things, look in verse 11. He begins to apply these realities of being united to Christ in his death and resurrection. He says, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is how you fight. This is how you battle sin in your life. You begin to consider these gospel realities as true. Isn't that how we began? I heard the gospel, and I believed, and I trusted, and my heart was set free. Well, it's the same way by which we apply the gospel even today. As we battle sin and discouragement and despair, and when death begins to breathe down our neck as we bury our loved ones, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. 
we remind ourselves of this passage, of who I really am. I'm not the old Chase. I'm not the old person in Adam. I have died. And he says, consider yourselves. Think about this. Begin to preach to your soul these truths. Begin to remind yourselves of these realities and begin to trust that you have been set free. This is what faith looks like. This is what exercising the muscle of faith is when I don't feel like it, when temptation is coming and I feel like it's going to overwhelm me, I begin to remember the truths of Scripture. I have died and I have risen with Christ and death no longer has dominion over me. I begin to remind myself of these things. I begin to fight by trusting the gospel of grace and believing that it's true. This is what we mean by faith alone. My response is not, oh, okay, God, I'm going to go do acts of penance, which is, I'll make it up to you. And that's not just happening in the Roman Catholic Church. That is the lie that men have believed throughout the century. I can make it up to God. And brothers and sisters, if you've ever played that game, that's so enslaving. It is, because you have no assurance. Because you're basing it on what you do. But the gospel says, I consider myself dead to sin and alive to God. Look in those two little words. In Christ Jesus. Two little letters is what I meant. But in Christ Jesus. We're in him. That is the hope. I've been united with him. That's the gospel that liberates And so you consider that sin, it has no dominion over you then. Because you stand in the realm of grace. This is where Paul had us begin in chapter 5. So how do we do this? Well, you set your mind on Christ and your union with Him. I want you to turn over to Colossians chapter 3 because Paul unpacks this a little bit more practically. Just turn, keep your finger in Romans, but... Go to Colossians chapter 3. So you're going Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And I want you to see these same truths are being reiterated in different ways, but same truths. Look at what Paul says in in Colossians chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, he's assuming this is true. Then seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Remind yourselves of these truths, brothers and sisters. I've been raised with Christ. My life is hidden in him. This is why the other soul, to the glory of God alone, this is no longer about me. I have died, but I live through Christ. Remind yourselves of these truths. And as we remind ourselves of these truths, that we've been set free, we remember that we've been set free to kill sin in our life. Look at, keep on going in Colossians, chapter 5, or verse 5. He describes it this way. Put to death what is earthly in you. He's talking about the old man. Put to death the old man. And he goes on, he characterizes the old self. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. 
That's the old man. I lived in them. I reveled in these things. And I thought they were offering me freedom, but they were enslaving to me. And so we begin to, to think, okay, I've been hidden with Christ. I'm setting my mind on things above. Therefore, if the old man has died, I need to put to death. I'm taking truth and I'm putting into action. I do not live according to these things anymore. I am free to kill sin in my life. I'm able to put it to death. But on the positive side, I'm free to live to God. He goes on in verse 12 of, of Colossians chapter 3. He says, so put on then. So there's a picture. I'm, putting off, I'm taking off the old man like clothes. I, I peel them off, but then I put on the new man. Who's the new man? I put on Christ. I wrap myself up in him. How do I do that? I do that through faith by considering these gospel truths. And then I act as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And I put on compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, he says, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Brothers and sisters, this is how grace works. This is how true liberating grace works. God's word is proclaimed. And we hear the offer of grace. We see the revelation of God giving himself to us. And this grace is dispensed through the word which produces faith in you. And it provides the object of our faith, which is Christ alone, which then enables us to live to God's glory alone. So if we come back to Romans chapter 6, he concludes... Think of all of what he says in Colossians 3. He says, verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You're now able to take these commands and put them into action as you trust the gospel that has been preached to you today. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. What are your members? Your body. When those desires of covetousness and evil and selfishness and backbiting and, 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 uh, and lying and cheating and stealing, they begin to wage war against your soul and you feel them overwhelming, you're now able to say, that is not me, that is the old man and you have died. And I am not going to use my members as instruments for unrighteousness. I'm not enslaved to these things anymore, but he says the end of verse 13, but present yourselves to God. That's worship. No, I want to present myself to God. I want to give myself to Him as those who have been brought from death to life and present my members to God as instruments for, our, for righteousness. That's that putting on principle. I need to live in the fact that sin no longer has dominion over me because I'm not under the law. I'm not under the old age, the age dominated by Adam. No, I am now in the new Adam who's died and rose again, and I'm a new man. I'm a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. The same time God was unleashing his word through Martin Luther in Germany, God was also working on a man named Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli was in Zurich, Switzerland. And this movement began to happen apart from Luther. 
but it was so similar because they were reading the same scriptures that many people began to say, are you a follower of Luther? And he said, no, I'm a follower of the word of God. And he too had received a copy of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, which get this, when he got it, he nearly memorized the entire thing. Reminds us of how those who love the word um, in those days when the word was not readily available. And in Zurich, he began to preach the scriptures. And things that he began to emphasize was that Christ is the true head of the church and rules his church through his word. Number two, he began to preach that Christ's death on the cross was a complete sacrifice and so does not need to be repeated in the mass. And he also preached that salvation is not by works, but by grace in Christ alone. And so Reformation began to, to spread in Zurich, Switzerland. Reformation also began to continue as God's word was heralded by John Calvin in Geneva, Switzerland in France. He even began uh, and established a Bible college by which missionaries and pastors could come to study the Bible and be equipped and be dispersed throughout Europe to begin to plant churches and reach people. And the word of God began to spread. Those who were trained and deployed preached God's word in Poland and Hungary and the Netherlands and Italy and even made themselves uh, down to, to South America. John Knox was a reformer in Scotland who began to preach then William Tyndale in, in England, along with Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. See, when the Word of God began to be made available to all, life began to come. We don't have time for me to go through all the effects of what the Reformation brought, but I can tell you, brothers and sisters, it has come, and the Word of God is being preached to us today, and we have it readily available because of what God did in the lives of just a few broken men and women. The word began to be unleashed. They went back to the sources and they began to see the life that is offered. And so brothers and sisters, is the Reformation over? It's never been over. And the Reformation started before the Reformation. Reformation started with Jesus Christ who came and brought life, began to be the revelation of himself, the word of God in human flesh. The Reformation began through the, the, the book of Acts as the apostles began to be empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to preach Christ and Him crucified. And all those who repent of their sins and trust in Him, they had nothing to say about a mass and popes and hierarchy and structure. No, they said that all who come to faith in Christ and believe come and worship Him and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is the Word of God. And the gospel began to be spread through the early church and the early church fathers began to be recovered and preached uh, in Africa through Augustine. And there were faithful brothers, Thomas Aquinas and others throughout history as the gospel began to be preached. And there were true gospel preachers in the days of the dark ages of, of, uh, of indulgences, but they were often killed and ex exiled. Strangely enough, this might have been the one time that the church was ahead of the curve in technology. As the printing press became available, this is how things began to spread faster than the Roman church could control. They used to think we can lock it up by keeping it translated in the Latin Vulgate, and we can put it, a, a, a lock on it with a key chained up, and we'll put it into a cage. Unless you come through us, you cannot get the word of God. But as we know, as the Apostle Paul said, though I am bound, the word of God is not bound. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but my word abides forever. Reformation occurs in churches all around the world as, as the word of God is preached. And reformation occurs in hearts of men and women all around the word, world as the word is heard. Let us continue in the spirit of that reformation and give ourselves to God's word, which liberates and gives us the true assurance of forgiveness of sins and life in Jesus' name. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Thank you that you have not kept us to ourselves. Thank you that you have given us your word, which gives us life. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today who has not received the word of life, that they would not leave here without at least talking to somebody. But Lord, they could even leave here today with a copy of the Word of God in their own language in a way they would understand it. Lord, you have done that work and we're thankful and we do not want to forget it. And so Lord, I pray for us today that we would realize that we would appropriate these truths. Help us, Lord, because, because the old man, he breathes, she breathes down our neck. There's a sense in which we feel schizophrenic, bipolar, as if the, there's two people inside of us. Lord, may we realize and trust these truths are so sure that we have died and we have been raised. And those truths will become sight when you return. And so, Lord, preserve us and keep us until that day. And it is in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.